from the Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South. This is the Swanee Review Podcast. I'm Hayden Dunbar, Editorial Assistant at the Swanee Review, and I'm here today in the Ralston Listening Room. I'm here today with Gwen E. Kirby, who recently released her debut collection, Shit Cassandra Saw. Gwen's stories can be found in Ten House, Guernica, One Story, and elsewhere. Her collection's title story, Shit Cassandra Saw, was selected for Best Small Fictions 2018, and Midwestern Girl is Tired of Appearing in Your Short Stories, also included in her debut, won the 2017 Disquiet Literary Prize for Fiction. Gwen currently teaches creative writing here at the University of the South and is also the Associate Director of Programs and Finance for the Swanee Writers' Conference. Gwen, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. What I really love about your collection is the way that it centers the female experience, these narratives of women, but it also does a really excellent job of balancing humor with these more serious stories. How do you give weight to these topics while also infusing this kind of levity into your work? You know, I think the challenge is not so much giving weight to the topics because the topics themselves are are so weighty. The second story in the collection, A Few Normal Things That Happen A Lot, deals with catcalling and groping and, you know, attempted rape and like topics that are so, so heavy that honestly, I think that the challenge is just to make them feel less grim, not because they're not grim, but I think because for me as a reader and writer, I want to find a way of engaging with those subjects that makes me feel hopeful. That's just something that's really important to me. I don't I don't really want to re-traumatize my readers. I really respect writers who who take on that trauma straight on and they just really go for it. But that's that's not really who I am as a writer. And that's not always what I really like to read as a reader either. Yeah, I think you do a really good job of making these stories hopeful and kind of reclaiming these experiences in a way that feels really powerful. I'm going to go ahead and have you read from the opening of Midwestern Girl is Tired of Appearing in Your Short Stories. Midwestern Girl goes to New York City, and she reminds the protagonist, of course she is not the protagonist, of everything he has left behind. He covets her innocence and also despises it. When she gives up and returns home, he is sad, but not surprised. A flick of your wrist. Midwestern Girl stands alone at a house party. The protagonist smiles at her as if to say, cheer up, and I notice subtle things. And this reminds the reader that the protagonist is secretly sensitive, no matter what terrible things he has done or will do. He and Midwestern Girl never speak, and the story leaves her to sip her beer in a corner. In the living room, the protagonist punches his best friend. Will he turn out to be like his father? He ends the night hanging out with two strangers. They walk to the East River and throw rocks into the fathomless deep. A knuckle crack. Midwestern girl walks down the street wearing a low-cut green blouse. As the protagonist passes, he takes a moment to admire her ample breasts before returning to his main concern. What will happen if I don't sell these exotic macaws before Ricky demands the money? When it starts to pour, the protagonist ducks into the first doorway he sees, only to find himself in a boutique sex shop. A woman is already there. Has she just come in like him? But no. 
While his bangs drip into his eyes, her bland beige coat is dry. Midwestern girl looks down to see her low-cut top gone, her pants suddenly waist-high and itchy. It sure is pouring, he says, and she says, this is nothing like the rain in Ohio. She must be embarrassed, he thinks, to be caught sifting through a bin of purple butt plugs. It's a gift for my niece's bachelorette party, she says. This is Midwestern girl's life. She bobs for apples. She laughs guilelessly. She's appalled by the price of serve-yourself froyo. Six dollars, she exclaims, while the New Yorkers in line behind her roll their eyes at her ignorance. She inhabits the edges of scenes and delivers remarks on the weather. She's pretty, but never beautiful. She's silent, but never mysterious. From time to time, standing at the edge of the crowded room as the story moves away from her, she wonders about the Midwest. She has heard herself say that she misses its squeaky cheese curds, its deep snows, its particular kind of good people. Though she is from there, she's never been. Wow, thank you. This character that you write about, the Midwestern girl, or at least the stereotype of her that you're kind of bringing into play, I read submissions all the time for my job, and this is totally someone that I feel like I see all the time. Are there pieces of work, and I'm not trying to have you throw anyone under the bus, but were there any stories or books that came to mind when you were kind of mocking this stereotype? I mean, when I wrote this story, I was doing exactly what it is that you do for a job. I was working for the Cincinnati Review, and I was reading The Slush Pile day after day after day, and you you just, like, see these tropes. And I think there's something about, and this is, I feel like this is going to sound like it's, like, slamming on people who submit to The Slush Pile, which I'm very much not. I still submit to The Slush Pile. But sometimes when you're in the hands of maybe, like, authors who are still learning their craft— these sort of stereotypes and tropes are glaringly obvious in a way that like maybe when you're reading a better writer, you read the whole book and then you're like, wait a minute, women characters didn't do anything in that book except for like have sex with the protagonist and die, you know? <laughs> and you're like, well, I don't, I don't love that. What, what's going on there? And so there is something about reading the slush pile, both I think because the writers are still getting a handle on their craft and because of the sheer volume of work that you're reading you just see those trends really really clearly and I was like if one more aspiring author describes a woman's boobs I'm gonna like lose my sweet mind and you know certainly there are contemporary writers who I see that who I will not throw under the bus certainly you know it it seems like low-hanging fruit but if you read like John Updike or Philip Roth it doesn't take a a keen close reading to be like women are in those books just to have sex with the men. Right, exactly. A similar trope that you you kind of, I think, toss in here a little bit is, and maybe this is just my reading, but the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, I feel For sure. like, comes up a little bit in this story. And that character who's at the bar, she's from Portland, she's tatted, she's looking at the stars. I would love to get your thoughts on the Manic Pixie Dream Girl as a trope. Well, something I really wanted to do when I got farther into that story was I'd started with Midwestern Girl because I'd I'd gone to a reading and this dude read his story and literally didn't name this woman. He just he just called her the Midwestern Girl. And I was like, you couldn't even pick a state in the Midwest. It was just like the whole she was from the whole Midwest. But as I started writing, I really wanted to make sure that I got at the point that like there is sort of that stereotype of a woman that comes from 
all the different parts of our country. So like the Portland girl with her tats and the California girl who's tan and she has small breasts that look perfect in her bikini. And I, I really wanted to sort of get at the point that all these different tropes of women are there to do something different for the male protagonist, right? right. So like the manic pixie dream girl is there to inspire him and make him feel alive for the first time <laughs> in forever, right? And then the the Midwestern girl with her ample bosom is there to like say something homey that reminds him of his mother. And I just really wanted to point out that those tropes are they're they're absurd. And I think we see them in film and we talk about them in film I think pretty clearly, but I feel right. like I don't hear a lot of discussion about that in literature. And yet I absolutely see it happening in literature. Exactly. I feel like so many of like the YA novels I grew up reading were about the manic pixie dream girl. And in a way I wanted to be her so badly. But then I think as I've gotten older, I've been able to realize she's not herself. She's the male protagonist's vision of her. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I grew up in California. So when I wrote the California girl in this in this story, that was totally the girl I wanted to be growing up, you know, slender and with a long torso and good at surfing. And but it was really about like, what did I want men to see when they looked at me? Right. And way less about like, who did I actually want to be on the inside? Like, what kind of person did I want to be? That didn't have anything to do with how good I did or didn't look in board shorts. So much more of a persona than actually what's going on on the inside. Yeah, absolutely. You've touched on this some, but do you have advice of how to stop putting this person in stories? Or do you think that there's maybe a purpose, obviously, in your story, there is a reason that she's included? Well, I think that and this is something that I, I say to my students probably ad nauseum, which is just that if you have a character in the story, even if they're a secondary character, you should write them as a complete person and you should have empathy for them and think about what their inner life might be like and, you know, try to keep in mind that, I guess, indeed, like Midwestern Girl, they are the protagonist of the story that they are living in. So to not have them there. And, you know, it it's tricky, you, you know, secondary tertiary characters that of course don't you know don't get a lot of lines or they're not all that well fleshed out but you know if you're looking at your at your story and you're like well all the secondary characters are just there to like move the protagonist on their journey well then they're they're probably not functioning as real people yeah. if that's how they're working in the story and of course if you're like again all the women are there to either be mothers or be whores well then you messed up and you should rethink that. And it's not like, and you suck if you've ever done that. I think part of learning how to write is learning how to recognize in our own work the stereotypes that, of course, we're replicating because they're so deep in our subconscious. Like, if you grow up reading those stereotypes over and over and over again, when you're a young writer, and even when you're, I mean, I, even now, me as a much more, I mean, I'm still... I'm like, much more experienced writer after my debut has come out a whole two months ago. You still replicate those stereotypes. It's instinctual. And it's much more just trying to look at your own work with a critical eye and say, okay, where am I doing that work? And where can I now try to do better with it? Do you have a sense at all of what people's response has been to writing these stories that are pointing out the critiques in men's work or bringing women so much to the forefront? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, you know, when I say I don't read reviews, mostly I mean I don't go on Goodreads. But I do get emails from readers, which is really, really cool. 
And they're mostly from women, but they're not entirely from women. I feel like I was asked early on when my book came out, like, well, what do you think men will think? And I was like, well, I don't know. If they're not dicks, they'll probably think like... This is an interesting exploration of what it looks like to be a woman in the world. You know, I don't think the book is like down with men. The book is just like down with men who want to grope you on the subway. And I feel like if you read that and you're like, that's unfair to me, then that sounds like a you issue that maybe you should think through a little bit more. I have had people write to me, men and women, and and I have really noticed a lot of, I think, particularly women saying that they appreciated that the book made them laugh, even while they were looking at things that felt true to them and difficult for them. Um, and that that meant a lot to me because that is something that I really, I really hope my work does. And so, so that was really nice. And, and, it, and I feel so honored when people write and say that they've given a copy of a book to a friend or something. I mean, that feels like the highest compliment you can pay a book. So I'm, I'm always very verklempt when I get those emails. That's one of the first things that I noticed reading the book, or even I went to your reading, and that was actually the first time that I had heard any of these stories. And so to be in that room full of people just laughing along as you read a few normal things was awesome. And I think that that's something that's just really special about this work. Thank you. For that story in particular, I just really liked writing a story where even though I was describing a lot of pretty upsetting things, like at no point in that story do you ever think the women are in danger. Like yeah. just from the structure of the story, in the very first paragraph, it's like a bad thing happens and then she kicks its ass. And then the next paragraph is the same. And like, obviously the story gets more complicated from there, but I, I think that you can go along as a reader and feel both upset by the things you're reading about, but I hope also kind of like taken care of by the logic of the story. Yeah. Going back to people's responses and kind of this sentiment that your writing is just for women, which I I agree with your take. I don't think that it is. If you're a man and you don't suck, like this book is for you. But do you feel that you have been labeled like a quote unquote like women's writer at all? Well, you know, it's it's complicated to publish as a woman in general. I think yeah. just because women are the majority of fiction readers. And so when you write as a woman, I think there is always a question of like, where am I going to be siloed? And, you know, am I going to be, am I going to be put in, you know, women's fiction and then of course taken less seriously? Or in my case, am I going to be put in literary fiction, but really just like marketed to women? I don't mind that. It's not like I am like, no, what I really want from this book is for men to read it. Like I definitely was thinking about women in the experience of womanhood when I was writing the book. And so that's awesome. I just think that when I read a collection by a male author that's mostly about men, I don't see the reviews of the book being like, men will really enjoy this book. You know, it's kind of like, well, you know, male protagonists are the gender neutral protagonists that we'll all enjoy reading about. And then women protagonists are for women and open-minded men willing to try something new. And that's that's really sad. Like it's 2022. That's absurd. So while I'm really excited to have the book be labeled as feminist, which I think that it is feminist, I think that the idea that a feminist book is only for women is really misguided. Yeah, I completely agree. No one would ask a man, are you a men's author? Weird thing. Well, because then you'd be like, 
if, if someone was like, yeah, I consider myself a men's author, you'd be like, oh, no. Like, you'd be like, run away. <laughs> yeah. And I do want to say I've had men, men I do not know have written me wonderful emails about really enjoying the book. So I do think that this kind of binary is in some ways m- more sort of like marketing and like culture war-y than it kind of has anything to do with the actual response I've gotten from the readers themselves. Right. And I don't know a lot about book marketing, for instance. Is that something that you do feel like happens a lot? Is that different books get really pigeonholed into certain genres? Yeah, I think that certainly can happen. And I really I really haven't felt that way with my collection. Like, I am really pleased with the way it was marketed. Also, it's a short story collection. So I don't know, Penguin wasn't like... We've got to really put the big marketing muscle behind this because it's going to sell a million copies. Like, it's not going to sell a million copies. It's a short story collection. But yeah, I think, you know, when you have a book, as mine is, that's like Margaret Atwood meets Buffy Uh in these stories of women at their breaking point, you know, it's that blurb is to catch the eye of women. And again, that's awesome. And I think an accurate Margaret Atwood meets Buffy, like in my dreams, my book accomplishes that. So I'm excited about that. I think it was accurately marketed. But I do think, yeah, when it's like, oh, this would appeal to women, that is the same thing as saying it won't appeal to men. And it's like that turn that I think is the problem, not the first part. Right, exactly. When it kind of crosses that line into exclusivity. So I want to pivot a little bit to talking about things that have been the catalysts for your stories. At your reading, I remember you referencing a few normal things that happen a lot. So if you'd like to talk about that or just in general. No, absolutely. So for that story in particular, I started writing that on the the day of the Dr. Blasey Ford and, and Brett Kavanaugh hearings, which was, you know, just a really upsetting day. I think I don't know that I need to elaborate on why that was upsetting. I think it's pretty clear. And I was really angry. And I'm pretty rarely really angry. I think as the book kind of shows, I'm a I'm a pretty upbeat kind of gal, but I was I was really, really upset. And I, I didn't really know what to do with those emotions. I certainly didn't know how to write a story from those emotions. And I wasn't really thinking like, oh, this will turn out to be a st- story per se, as much as I was just like, I would like to feel better. And so I started writing these paragraphs that were just, I mean, they're they're the paragraphs that are the opening of the story now, which are just like, a woman walks down the street, a dude is a dick to her, and she fucking bites his hand off. And I really needed that. I really just needed to feel like all day I had watched this woman, this intelligent, articulate woman, be a punching bag. And then this dude go up there and like cry because he didn't get the thing he thought he deserved, and then get the thing. And it just Anyway, we can feel my emotion coming back out into the podcast, and it's been several years now, but yeah, I was really angry. Um, But then, you know, to turn it into a story, it it couldn't just be, wouldn't the world be awesome if, like, we could do violence to men? Because that is not at all what the point of the, the story is. I mean, the point of the story is that the fact that we even need to imagine these things is, you know, hurts us, too. The idea that the only way that I would feel safe in the world is that I could do violence exactly like men do is really, really profoundly sad in a lot of ways. And I think that's where the story ends, even as it kind of celebrates that idea of freedom. I think it really asks, like, gosh, is this the best? Is this the best we can do? And I hope the answer is no. 
But yeah, so it was inspired from that moment. I hope I brought it to a place that was more complex than just that initial moment of of rage. And it's unusual for me to have a story that is that concretely like I remember starting it and this is what I was feeling. I mean, it was an infuriating time for so many women. And I think that your story is such a powerful response to that. I agree. I think the ending is really, really lovely in that piece because even as we see these women like take power over men and they're so strong, but as the story resolves, it's still kind of like, but at what cost? Yeah. I mean, there's the the saddest moment in the story for me is when the this woman who's a radioactive cockroach is dating this dude and he, he kills her because he's afraid of her. And cockroaches can be decapitated and live for a while longer. So she she kills him. And then she's like, but that didn't fix me. Like, I'm not better because of that. He's just dead. And yeah. that, I don't know, when I wrote that, I felt really, felt really sad. That felt really kind of true for me, even during a story, which I often found really cathartic and fun to write. Like, I loved having characters who were werewolves and radioactive cockroaches and all those witches. That was really awesome. But but sad too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, on a similar note, as you were processing this event that happened and writing this story, was it ultimately a kind of catharsis? Have your other stories been that way at all? I think when you're able to take something you feel powerfully and put it into a story, it gives you something to do with that emotion other than just feel really ragey. And maybe do more proactive things like donate to the ACLU or whatever it's going to be. So yeah, it is cathartic. I think I think with all my stories, the reason that there are stories that ended up in the book and not in my folder of 1,000 other stories I've written that suck um, is that they are processing something, something mm-hmm. that I'm trying to think through. I feel like for every story in the book, I could be like, this is the thing in that story that I'm trying to work through for myself. And again, with a few normal things, that was like, okay, I know exactly what it is I'm working through. With a lot of stories, it's not that way. I'll be like, oh, you know, like, I don't know, for the for the unclaimed baggage story, I had been to the unclaimed baggage store in Alabama years ago. And I just was like, I don't know what this is going to be yet, but I know I really want to set a story there. And so, you know, I didn't start that story being like, oh, here's the thing I'm going to work through. I started that story being like, unclaimed baggage stores are awesome and I really want to write about one. And then as I wrote it, I was like, okay, well, this is a story where I'm thinking through like female friendship and, you know, adolescence and the ways that women lash out at each other when men hurt them and all those things. So like, there are a lot of things in the story that I'm thinking through, but I was totally just like, I want to write about a taxidermied albino wallaby. Right, right. And that story is actually exactly where I wanted to bring us next because I love that story. And I have been to the unclaimed baggage store and I noticed that the two unclaimed baggage stores, the one that is really big in a warehouse and everyone goes to, and then the dinky one that has an off-brand name. That was what really (laughs) captured my imagination. I was like, I've spent years being like, how am I going to write about this place? I really want to write about this place. And it was when I was like, what about the teenagers who don't get to work for the – because it's such a little town. Uh And I was like, what about like the three kids who have to work for the shit (laughs) uncle? And that was when I was like, okay, that's what – like 
that's my in with that story. That's what this is going to be about. That's so cool. When you do notice these spaces that start to take up room in your imagination or instances or experiences, what is that sensation like where you're like, I've noticed something and I have to write about it? I think it's kind of twofold. I think I think the first part of that is just you go somewhere and it strikes you. So like the unclaimed baggage store or there's a story in the book about this Welsh prostitute who lives in Patagonia in the, I think it's in the 1800s. I clearly have not read my own book in quite a while. But that was from, I, I lived in Argentina for a few years after college and I was taking this bus through Patagonia and we stopped at this Welsh town and I was like, what, like, what, what? Like, wh- where are we? And so, of course, I was like, I have to write about this place. But I think the that first spark of like, oh, what a neat thing, then for me is really like, am I, st- is that still rattling around in my brain a couple years later? Because sometimes I am able to write about something right away, but I would say for me, usually it takes a few years of sort of percolating around for me to figure out like, okay, I'm interested in the thing, but like, what's my angle into the thing? For the unclaimed baggage store, it's the little shitty one. And I was like, okay, that's what it is. Or like for the Welsh prostitute story, it was like, okay, I'm interested in this place, but I think I want to, I think I want to take it from like a historical route. I think I want to do some research on its past. But I didn't know that when I was in that town, I was just like, it's super cool that you can like take tea time in this Welsh village in the middle of Patagonia. That's awesome. Yeah. No, my notes app is full of just weird instances, and I've yet to write about hardly any of them, but just those things that you notice, and you're like, that was really odd, and I need to remember that that happened. They stick with you, and I think sometimes you're drafting a story, and you kind of hit a moment, and one of those weird instances from your past will bubble up, and you think, that's the turn this is going to take, and you and you get it in there. Yeah. So... On the topic of craft and ideas, do you have kind of a formula or a strategy of how you write? Do you let your stories wander? Or when you come to the page, do you have a beginning, middle, and end that you want to reach? I wish that I had a beginning, middle, and end that I wanted to reach. It's usually either like a setting or a scenario or even just like a voice. And then I just have to kind of write forward from there. And sometimes I'll kind of figure out as I'm going like where I think the endpoint is going to be. And it's often the middle that I find to be the absolute most challenging part because I'll start somewhere and I'm like, okay, you know, I, I've been practicing long enough that like I'm pretty sure this is the right place to start the story. And I'm pretty sure this is where I imagine them ending up. But what on earth happens in the middle of the story? And I just feel like for me, I just have to write into it and see what happens. And I think if anything, one of my weaknesses as a writer is that I write too short on my first drafts, that I don't let myself kind of wander and explore the world as much as I should because I'm worried that I'm like, I'm being boring or, you know, I'm I'm gonna get off topic or something. And I think that that's I am continuing to work on letting the reins loose more as I draft, particularly as I sort of look down the barrel of of trying to write a novel, that feeling of being allowed to be a bit more expansive is something that I'm just still really figuring out. Yeah, I can imagine having that much real estate can feel intimidating. It's a lot of page to fill up. It is. It is daunting. 
Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. I'm going to have you read now from How to Retile Your Bathroom in Six Easy Steps. It's in the form of a WikiHow article, and I'm going to start here and read instruction number two. Buy supplies. Plastic sheeting, masking tape, utility knife, chisel, hammer. There must be a hammer somewhere, but do not go into the garage to look. You want your own hammer. Chalk line tool, thin set, spacers, level, wet saw, tile nippers, tile cutting bit, water-resistant silicone caulk. Do not go to the store to buy these items. You did not bear children so that you could go to the store yourself. Your younger son is in his room fooling around with his girlfriend who stayed the night. Pretend you do not know this. Pretend you are sending your older son because he is downstairs finishing breakfast, clearly available and not because your younger son might refuse to go. Your older son will complain that this is unfair. He is correct. It is also unfair that your husband has left you for the orthodontist. It is unfair that he did not leave you years ago, when you still had many different people you wanted to fuck and many frequent flyer miles. It is unfair that you never learned how to walk in heels and unfair that you might need to learn now. It's unfair that you got a C in that art class in college and stopped drawing, and unfair that your coworker overheard you calling her a bitch, and unfair that polar bears are stuck on melting ice flows, and unfair that mosquitoes carry malaria, and it is unfair and unfair, and your son will see it in your expression, and he will not want to know what you are thinking. He will go quietly to the hardware store. You believe in not telling your children about your problems. Well done, you, for keeping that all inside. You are a good mother. When you have made this bathroom beautiful, you will be an even better one. While your son buys supplies, there will be a lull in the action. Do not let it shake your passion for home improvement. There is some beer in the refrigerator. Carry a bottle out to the backyard and take a single sip. It is morning. It is spring. It is Saturday. The climbing vines are budding with purple flowers and will pull down the wooden fence soon if you don't take care of it. It's too early for a beer, but it's also too early for drama, and this is why you are not crying. You are not prostrate, some absurd caricature of an abandoned woman. No, you are standing in the sun, waiting for step three to take charge of your life. Thank you. As you mentioned before you started, this story is playing with form. It's in the form of a WikiHow article. You also have a story in this collection that's a restaurant review that I think is hilarious. When you are working outside the box formally, do you ever second guess this kind of risk-taking? Not really. I guess because the stakes never seem that high. Like when you're writing a story and, you know, you're like, oh, I don't know, is this is this weird thing I'm going to do? Is it going to work? Well, if it doesn't work, then you just don't write the rest of the story, you know, and Lord knows I've written lots and lots of stories that were not in experimental forms that didn't work. So no, I don't worry about that. I think the thing that I do worry about is, 
you know, does the form feel organic to the character and to the story? Or does it feel like something I am forcing on the story being like, look how like clever I am or like, look at the like acrobatics I can do in this story with form, you know, and that's, that is not something I want to have in my, in my work. I think in both the story I just read from and in Cherry's Crab Shack, One Star, it's the character who's really invested in the form, right? So like for the Yelp review, this guy like has no idea how to process the emotions that he's having about his marriage and about how the night has gone. And so, you know, what has he done? Had a mature conversation with his wife? No, absolutely not. (laughs) He's decided to have a few beers and write a Yelp review about this restaurant. And it matters to him what he says in this Yelp review. And so hopefully it doesn't feel, you know, like, ooh, it's a story that's in a form. Hopefully it feels like it's a guy who just really thinks if he gets this Yelp review right, he will have fixed something about his own life. And of course, does not work out that way. The Yelp review kind of unravels as you would expect. And it's the same with the WikiHow article. She just wants to believe, like, if I just follow this set of instructions, it's all going to be okay. And I think that really reflects the way she feels about her life, which is just like, I was following this set of instructions. I got married. I had kids. I have a house. I should be okay. And of course, you know, you can have any set of instructions you want and everything can still absolutely fall apart. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you completely succeed in these forms. I don't think that they feel like some kind of show off flex uh, <laughs> on the reader. No, I think they fit really well. How did you get the idea to include these? I mean, it was not a stroke of genius. For the WikiHow article one, it was just literally because I, I knew I wanted to write a story about a woman angrily retiling her bathroom. And so I I've never retiled a bathroom. So I went on the internet to see how to retile a bathroom, (laughs) just how this character would have done. And I I got to the WikiHow article and I just was like, oh, like, what if I just, what if I just use this as a framework for the story? And even as I was thinking that, I wasn't necessarily like, the story will for sure end up in this form. It was more like, okay, well, this, this will provide a scaffolding for me, the writer, while I figure out what this might be. And as soon as I got into it, I was like, yes, this feels this feels right. This feels right for her. For the Yelp review story, and I had completely forgotten this until I was talking with Leah Stewart recently, who who now is my boss here at the Writers Conference, but was my teacher in graduate school. She had us do these imitations, and we I had been reading a book called Dear Committee Members, which is in the form of letters of recommendation. So I was like, okay, well, what are other sort of what are other like forms out there in the world that we use? And I thought, well, I could take a crack at a Yelp review. And my, my favorite thing about internet reviews is always just like how insanely personal they can get. You're just like, I just wanted to know like if this was going to be an okay place to eat. And people are like, this was where I got divorced. And this, and you know, and you're like, whoa, like there's way more information than we needed. And so I, I really wanted to, to play with that idea of just like, how personal strangers on the internet can be because I'm fascinated by that. There's nothing better than an unhinged internet review. Of- it's incredible. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I don't read my Goodreads, Goodreads reviews. It's fair. But I love reading like one-star reviews of other people's books that'll just be like, I didn't like this because like, I think that Baltimore is a terrible place and I can't believe this book was set there. You're like, what? 
that's not a critique of the book. That's just like a weird issue you have with Baltimore. Literally, um, it is irrelevant. It's irrelevant, <laughs> you know, or like there was a review of my book I saw early days that was like, I really enjoyed this, but I don't like short stories. Two stars. And I was like, okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I love, I love people on the internet just bearing their souls. Yeah, yeah. Going back to what you said about men reading your work, like sometimes it's just a you problem. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> it's a you problem. And and yeah, Jerry Scrapshack is one of the one of the male narrators in my book. Yeah, I think he's the only one. He's one of two. The other one is the dude who runs over their cat. Oh, yes. This is based on my yes. mom running over our cat. Oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Well, again, this goes back to, though, I think you have an, an eye for observation in your life that you're able to notice, like, an internet review or your mom <laughs> running over your cat and see something that is not just an incident, but fuel for something greater. Oh, thank you. I think that that's I think that's what writers do for the most part when we're lucky is that we we kind of store all these little nuggets of life away and then eventually we figure out how to bring them into a story. One of the other things going back to how to retile your bathroom that I really, really love about your collection is just how authentic your women characters are. And obviously there's a lot of them. This is not surprising. You are making them nuanced and complex. They aren't Midwestern girls. But in this story specifically, the thing that I really appreciate is how angry you let the protagonist be how do you create these characters that feel so tangibly real well i mean i think my hope for her and for any of them really is that they is that they can be really like messy even while for the most part honestly they're kind of holding their shit together so because i think that that is what feels most authentic to me like you know life is hard <laughs> and we go through it angry and messy and a little roiling ball on the inside. And we actually like go through the day and make food for our children and we go to our job and we just like live our lives. And so, you know, the the woman in the bathroom retiling story, I mean, she's she still goes down and like makes sure her kids are eating, says hi to them, you know, and like, yeah, she's ripping up the bathroom, but she's not blowing up the house. So I think, yeah, I think I do try to, like, they're angry at, like, a seven. Like, they're not burning their lives down. Well, admittedly, some of them are kind of burning their lives (laughs) down. I mean, so I I guess I think when I think of, like, angry and messy, I think a lot of the protagonist in um, Here Preached His Last, which is a woman who uh, the story opens with her having an affair for the first time and this, this ghost enlightenment era preachers watching them and it kind of goes off from there and and i i really wanted to write a story i think a little bit about the normal and the mundane and like honestly people cheating is normal and mundane it feels like a little bit of like a third rail in writing because i think like if you want someone to hate your character and be unwilling to read about them have them be cheating and that really upsets people and that's i mean that's totally fair that makes sense but i really wanted to explore and think about like why would someone do that? Why does she feel angry and trapped and alone, even in the middle of this life that 
really doesn't look empty. Like she's so busy. And that was something I really wanted to convey in the book is like, she's really alone. She feels really isolated. And yet she's constantly having to do things. She takes care of her daughter. She goes to teach. She coaches the soccer team. She's so busy and she's so isolated. And so of course she's angry because there are a million demands on her without really requiring anything of like her true self. And I do think that that's maybe what feels so true about these female characters is that they're angry and they're frustrated. But as you were saying, they're still managing to hold it all together. And I think that that's something, you know, so many of us have been expected to kind of have this level head or be cool because it feels like so much to be like the angry woman. Yeah, I mean, we're not given space for that. Yeah, at all. I think anger is one of those emotions as a woman that you are very much not supposed to express. And my book is full of angry women. And that is because most of the women I know are pretty angry. And I think that that's, that is something that when people have written to me about my work, people have been like, this felt really real and true for me. I am also pissed off. Right. And to read something about people being pissed off as a means to feel pissed off when you can't always articulate that. In your own world. Yeah, and I think that that also, like, plays into why the book's funny. I mean, I, like, never laugh harder than I do when I'm hanging out with my girlfriends being pissed off and talking shit. Yeah. Like, you laugh so hard because that's how you kind of live with it and process it. And that's how you feel better at the end of that night, even though you haven't fixed anything necessarily. But you've created a community around it. You've made an experience that you're not isolated with anymore. And I don't know, that's kind of how you get through. Working in my job, I've met a lot of authors. I get to talk to a lot of people about their work. And I really love that. A question that I keep getting asked is, are you a writer? And for me, that feels really scary. I think aspiring writer is kind of a weird term, but also saying yes, hard stop feels really strange to me. So when did you find the bravery to call yourself a writer? When was that something that you knew that you wanted to pursue? Well, I think they're two really different things. I knew that I wanted to pursue writing for a really, really long time. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm every cliche in the book. You know, I was writing furiously, writing poems, growing up, and and stories, and you know, so I, I knew I wanted to write or be a writer even long before I had any idea at all what that meant, <laughs> or you know, how long that would take to actually do. But calling myself a writer, I mean, honestly, I still feel weird doing it. Um, I thought maybe the book would fix that problem. It has not. I think it's hard to be like, yeah, I'm a writer. And I don't know why. Obviously, I'm a writer. I wrote a book. But I think being a writer is like kind of one of those things that only feels true while you're doing it. I feel like a writer when I'm writing. Yeah. And then when I stop writing, I just feel like someone who has written. You know, I don't know. Maybe if I just keep writing, that will change and I'll feel like a writer all the time. But that's not really how I experience it. And I do wonder if gender, I mean, I feel like the listeners are like, oh my God, stop 
banging on about gender. No, but I almost um, brought it back to I that. I do think it is harder for women. I think we often... And well, I won't just say women. I think it can be harder for anyone who feels maybe like marginalized yeah. to assert that they are a writer because you're really asserting like, I have something to say and like people should be listening to what I have to say because that's what writing is. And that can feel really like you're stepping out of line or or asserting something that like by asserting it, you're going to immediately be told that's not true. Yes. And so I think that all those sort of insecurities and feelings around that are are definitely there and it's helpful to have a book but it hasn't changed that kind of deep down feeling the imposter syndrome a little bit yeah yeah what lessons have you learned as a writer i'm gonna call you a writer good Um, i mean i am a writer i would like to say like i am a writer i know i'm a writer it just, I feel like it, it gets very complicated in one's own head. But yes, it's important to assert these things. I am a writer. I'm holding the book that I wrote. <laughs> I am a writer. But it is, it is scary. But what lessons have you learned just in general writing for a long time, but also from publishing your first collection? Oh, gosh. I mean, a lot. What I've learned as a writer, I think, has been a very slow process of figuring out what it is I want to write about, what it is I might have to say, and feeling free to write and say those things in the way that I want to say them. I remember very, very vividly starting my MFA when I was 26, 10 years ago, uh, and I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I did not know what I wanted to write. And I wrote stories early on, especially that, you know, that I felt like looked like the stories someone ought to write, you know, realism. And a lot of this is realism, but it's kind of weird realism. Um, You know, like, I don't know, realism that like Raymond Carmer would approve of you writing or something, you know, and and I don't regret that. I think that I learned an enormous amount writing those stories. I learned about when to start a story, how to characterize, how to get out of a messy middle, what a scene should do, how to end a story, all those things. I think we are so obsessed with finding your voice that we discount sometimes the really important work that you do on the path to that. And that it's really, it's not only okay, but it's it's inevitable and necessary you write stories that look like the stories you've read. I mean, it would be like criticizing someone for making a film by like looking at how to make a film. Like, of of course you're going to start that way. So I think I learned to accept that. And I've since then learned that I really like to write characters who swear and fuck and make bad decisions and express emotions that are maybe ugly and more complicated and that those are the stories that I want to tell. And that's been very liberating for me. As for what I've learned from publishing, have a good agent. (laughs) You know, that sounds obvious, but you know, not just have a good agent, but have an agent who believes in the thing that you're doing. I had agents start reaching out to me when I had stories that started being published in sort of better journals. And you could tell talking with them whether or not they just wanted to sell something or whether or not they were excited about what it was you were trying to do. And that has made a huge difference. 
and I don't know, get a little bit lucky because luck is, is always involved and that's really hard to hear, but it's true. Yeah. I don't know. I'm like, I've learned, I mean, it's like, I've learned so much no, from publishing a, a book. It's a broad question. That I'm like, I could be like, you know, when your editor says this, don't panic. Yeah, um, stay calm. Stay calm. That's the hardest part because, you know, you don't hear from your editor for a month and you're like, they regret buying the book. And it's like, no, they just, they have a lot of books they're working <laughs> on. They're a notoriously overworked profession. It's not personal. They're going to get back to you when they get back to you. So like, you're not the most important person in the world to your agent or your editor. So if they're not like emailing you all the time, it's probably because they have a life. And not because they hate you. Or... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I heard that so many times. I was like, they deeply regret. I was like, why would they? I haven't done anything to them since I talked to them last. So yeah, you know, I don't know. S stay calm. Don't panic. Have a good agent. And know that it's going to take a really, really, really long time to get good at it and that's because it's worth the work yeah but it's gonna turn into something really lovely yeah if you're lucky I, I mean i'm at the start of a new project and i'm kind of having to have that chat with myself which is like this could go really well and it could not go well and i could spend the next four years working on this and then i could have to start over and that happens that happens a lot that's terrifying. It is. It really is. And I, I think that it's it's mostly a matter of being like, I can't let that paralyze me. There's always something new you have to learn. I mean, I worked on this for eight years. And so it's been a really, really long time since I've sort of had to take that step and be like, all right, this is the thing that I'm now going to try to make. And right. it's, it is scary because you're like, well, it, you know, it, there's no, there's no like it. Well, it for sure will be good. It'll definitely work out. Like it may not. And you have to be okay with that. And willing to just keep going with it. Yeah. Well, Gwen, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so happy to have had this chance to talk with you. And I really, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. And I really appreciate the time and thought you put into all your questions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Swanee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Swanee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.theswaneereview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Swanee Review. Until next time, this is the Swanee Review, new since 1892.